This is Journeys in Podcasting, and we are uh, meeting in the afternoon to talk to two educators, John Fallon and Paul Darvasi. I will let them introduce themselves before we delve into their work. Uh, John, who are you and where are you? My name is John Fallon. I am an English teacher. I've been teaching English for the last 10 years, going into my 11th. I'm based out of Fairfield, Connecticut, which is where I've been teaching for the most part um, now in West Haven at Notre Dame West Haven High School, which is a uh, Catholic all-boys school of about 400 and 500 boys. Um, I've been doing game-based learning of various types for the last seven, probably seven or eight years at, at this point. It took me a couple of years just to get my sea legs before I started experimenting. And I, I started with developing kind of in-house classroom games that would probably fall under the umbrella of alternate reality games, which is where um, I crossed paths with Paul. Uh, we collaborated on, on a few projects. And then I've also been using video games as text uh, to develop the same reading, writing, and critical thinking skills that any other English classroom would recognize, but with video games. Great, we'll unpack that more as we go because I think it takes a lot of explaining to explain what you actually do. It's not as simple as saying we're game-based learning or that we're augmented reality gaming it's way more complex uh paul how are you you've been on the podcast before but you could remind people who you are what you do sure of course yeah happy to be back my name is paul dervazi and i am an english and media studies teacher in toronto canada i teach at an all-boys school uh, called royal st george's college and i've been teaching for about 20 years i design alternate reality games and i've designed one with john i also do a lot of work with video games commercial video games in the classroom i've worked with other teachers to help them implement commercial video games and i've implemented some in my english and media studies classes I also write uh, about games and the intersections of games and culture, games and society. And I am a doctoral candidate at York University where I am doing research on how white adolescent boys relate to race in Grand Theft Auto V. A few years ago, I visited an ISTE uh, and I was chasing down anyone working on uh, game-based learning. And this is where I met Paul and a lot of other like-minded people. Since we've been in the 21st century, I've kind of been looking around like who's doing this really well. And the closest people in the education world that I would say are doing it pervasively are the ones that are really tweaking the learning environment through making the learning a game. I'm not talking about gamification here, just giving points for accomplishing things but for actually embodying the classroom as like a situated game itself. This overlaps a lot with participatory theater and with a lot of other forms of cognition that I hope we can get to a little bit. John, the first questions are, are going to be kind of geared towards you because of a series of blog posts that you have that are about the unreliable narrator. You talk about a story as simple as Shirley Jackson's Charles becomes a delightful literary prank that reminds us that we all tend to believe what we want to believe, even when the uncomfortable truth is staring you right in the face at the dinner table. This comes straight up your blog. Building this metacognition, these are my comments, providing the space for students to parse their own thoughts, to delay the interpretive mind, and to hopefully learn how different types of media manipulate the unconscious emotional brain. I wonder how, how this plays out how the decoding of the facts on one side, but also the reflection of how we construct understanding from our medias, often through emotional triggers and our default belief systems. 
How do you see that at play? I think one of the things that's great about unreliable narrators as a fictional device is that they kind of show a lot of the same cognitive weaknesses that we have, like confirmation bias, and you know that that we encounter and deal with every day. But when you put it within a, a fictional context, it allows it to almost it'd be safer to approach those because you know the more a more traditional way would be like okay, get a news article and break down both sides, and very quickly you. Can can kind of see at least i've seen that students are very sensitive when you put it in those real life contexts and i think the walls go up much faster I and mean, people kind of retreat to their corners but when it's fictional you can kind of still diagnose those things in the characters and there's a little bit of a of distance that helps the students be able to see those things in action and then once you identify them in a story with the characters I think kind of transferring it that to other contexts becomes a lot easier. And, and I think because it's more fun, they're much uh, students are much more likely to, to receive it and deal with it in and out of the classroom. This is kind of going straight into the, the next part of your blog where you write, um, unreliable narrators force us to see the text down to its DNA. Like Neo in The Matrix, we must learn to see that the mechanisms that hold the fictional world together inconsistencies, hyperbole, falsehoods, etc., are no longer merely the instruments of an author's world building, but challenges and distortions that we must overcome to fully understand the story. I'm fascinated by this interplay between narrative and games. The way I've thought about it is, is um, deep play and deep reading are very much the same, that the author invokes this kind of fantasy game. This is what you're talking about, of like lowering the, the filter. Uh, once you make it like a, a playful fictional narrative. And to really go deep, you have to be a willing reader. You both are lowering this threshold for what I imagine are sometimes reluctant readers. Overlaying games with literature, this is powerful stuff. How do you see this effect on student process and product? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because I would say that that definitely goes to the core of one of the main reasons I'm so passionate about game-based learning is that it does strike deeply in, into kind of the engagement aspect for students. You know, I might be skipping ahead, but her story, which is the game that I use as like the, the, the final text in the unreliable narrator unit. I mean, I had boys that even for the stories that, that I think that, that made them found interesting, we're still kind of keeping it at arm's length. And then these same boys, once we got to her story and it was being presented in this novel way, in this multimedia fashion, and, and, and almost as a direct challenge to their to their intellect basically I had boys literally who would be falling asleep if we were reading a similar text squirming in their seats because they're like I have to go to the bathroom but I don't want to miss a single second of the next clip you know and Paul can speak to it too but when you change the context and you just change the way it's presented and the context of which they're approaching it, instead of a, this static thing, you know, like a holy shrine, like kneel at the altar of Shakespeare and, you know, let its blessings come upon you and then you will walk away, uh, you know, a learned man. Once you kind of make it this challenge that they participate in, it totally changes the way that they are, are learning and interacting. I, I also feel that the multimodal element of the game, the dynamic and, and, and embodied element of the game is also really stimulating. 
I don't necessarily buy into the, the, you know, the, the very clean recipe that Gardner has put out for the multiple ways of learning. But I do think that there's different ways that people can be appealed to. And using a game like Her Story, which is a brilliant game, and John's use of it is absolutely brilliant. I can't think of a better text to teach on Reliable Narrator. Really will stimulate kids that, that may not otherwise take interest in a, in a more traditional literary classroom. Glad you mentioned the Gardner Frames of Mind, just because I feel like it's one of the more misunderstood it's right up there with like zone of proximal development. It's it's one of the most simplified, distilled version gets into the classroom into like learning styles. But he talks a lot about bridging through metaphors of going between uh, one form of intelligence or one modality to another, which I think is a very powerful thing for uh, not just gaming, but for teachers who are trying to create environments where attention is, is a problem, but also maybe language itself. So I've always taught younger kids the more we can like spread it across modalities, the lower that threshold and higher engagement you'll get. John, you also write that we must by definition play. In the end, it is a, a paradoxical effect. We're simultaneous, simultaneously drawn out of the story as we tear it apart like a tinkering engineer, but the narrator's flaws and even untruthfulness somehow make them more real, more, dare I say, human. Unreliable narrator seems to create this lean in effect that I was mentioning at the beginning of not just passively floating through the story. I think I use this during read-alouds with kids, playing stupid in your think-alouds, so they have to be on watch to catch you when you're wrong, or to purposefully throw out misleading information to make sure they, they do catch you. This works for elementary school students. How does it work for high school students? Well, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that old uh, you know, math te teacher joke that the quickest way to get kids to correct a mistake on, on, on the board is for you to do a mistake on the board because they're very attuned to when the mistakes are, are outside of them, but not so much when it's their own. That's why English teachers and other teachers forever use things like peer editing because when you're looking at someone else's work, you're going to be much more sensitive and you give your own work a pass. Within kind of this context, I would say it really is like the, one of the things I like about games and learning is that they add a meaningful context. Teachers can do this in a million different ways and great teachers have done it forever, even without games. I would say most lessons, most of the time for most students, completely lack context. You know, I, I, you know I'm not as, as well read in the research as, as you or Paul or others, but you know, what I know from experience and from reading is that when you subtract all the context for learning and just make it dry, abstract information, you know, degree of learning is going to plummet for everyone except for the most extrinsically motivated student um, who wants to absorb the information just to spit it out for a grade. But when you add a game, they're instantly engaged and it's contextualized in a way that they want to participate. And once you get over that hump, a lot of the learning is just gonna kind of flow down from there. Another student I've had who was very much not an engaged student, did not care about English class, would sleep through class, then go to the learning center, have the a learning aid help him spit through the rest so he could then hand it in and, and forget about it. He was sitting there as we were playing her story and just literally mouthing every word that was spoken on the screen to absorb it. And he and I I just I'm sitting in the back while they're doing this because I'm not actively really participating. And he just kind of turns to me and he just goes, man, I feel it just like a detective. And then he just goes back to like learning it. And it's that context that makes you want to learn where you feel like you're doing something that is fun and worthwhile. And even just the light fiction of a game allows students to, to do something way more exciting than just memorize stuff and spit it back out. You write that it took only a few minutes of playing to realize that her story was not only a game tangentially applicable to English class curriculums, but that it was in fact a close reading game. The entire user interface and narrative experience is designed for the player to dissect, analyze, 
and annotate text and video. I'm wondering here about assessment and the metrics of learning that we're all accountable for. The criteria of teachers is often very much based upon these metrics. Even within some of the more progressive private schools, this is just a fact of the trade. What is a formative assessment look like throughout this gaming process? What's the final test? What's the student product? Sure. So as far as like what they actually have to do is we read a series of how I contextualized as um, a series of increasingly complex short stories with unreliable narrators as a way of kind of level them up the way a game would, where you're going to start with, with a very easy, basic thing and gradually introduce more difficulty, different types of, of, of ways of looking at a story and dealing with an unreliable narrator. And then her story, which is this kind of non-linear player guided text that they have to navigate themselves as like the final boss. So for each story, I have developed and, and retooled a graphic organizer based on some um, other uh, unreliable narrator research that I had found it basically became like the 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 worksheet that they would have to do Um, and it would have a list of the questions that they would need to keep track of different types and motives essentially for unreliable narration of like why is the character doing that and then all those boxes and all those areas that's where they have to put their textual evidence like a quote to say like okay they're unreliable for this reason here's the quote so they basically will have accumulated at the end of each story you know a whole graphic organizer full of close reading annotation uh for each one and for her story they had to do the same thing that's what they would have in front of them while they were interacting with the game is they would be filling that that out as they go so as far as what they're working on uh as they progress it's, it's that annotated graphic organizer and then for the final one i played around with different options. Uh, the one that really works the best and most students when they had a choice would choose would be um, a formal review, which is essentially a thesis-based persuasive essay. And I know it's like a thesis-based persuasive essay because I contacted a uh, former reviews editor at, at the uh, video game site Polygon. And that was exactly what he told me when I was asking for materials and guidance of how to teach a good review. He said, it's a five-part thesis-based essay, just like you would take on the AP test, just with, you know, some modifications, obviously, for the topic matter. I didn't even have to prompt him for that. He he gave that to me. And so I always show that off to my skeptical students uh, when they say that it has no value anywhere else in the world. That final writing assessment is, is, is what is like the final project. After they finish her story, they then have to do a formal uh, review. View, um, just like they would find, um, you know, out in the in the wild for uh, video game review sites. You mentioned that the National Council of Teachers of English has their 21st century learning skills, which overlays mm-hmm. somewhat with ISTE student standards. What you all are doing seems much more aligned with something that I've read about. I guess I'm sure you know too, is like new media literacies, where play, appropriation, multitasking, judgment, distributed teaching and learning, they all come into play in the learning environment you're designing. It sounds a lot like what Celie Brown calls situated learning. How do you communicate this complexity to your students, to your learning community? I can't imagine that everyone even comprehends what you're talking about. You know, I've been I've been pretty lucky both at my old school and even more so at my new school, certainly within administration. And I would say most parents, they understand that if I'm teaching the same way their English teacher did in 1985, 1975, that word that we're just fundamentally not preparing their kid for the real world. So when I say like, you know, yeah, we use different types of media. I use games, talk about critical thinking annotation. I don't get any pushback at all. I would say the most disappointing reaction I get is usually from teachers. And it's not that they, uh, they've ever 
cast aspersions on it. It's usually they just shrug their shoulders and they're like, wow, I wish I could do that, but I don't understand games or I don't understand how to do that or I don't play games, so I can't do it. The reason why I, you know, do podcasts and go to conferences and start professional learning communities at my school is to try to help teachers get over that. I'm sure Paul has similar stories, but it's usually not negative. It's usually wistful. I try to help them realize that that they don't have to exclude themselves that quickly. And I think it's usually in good faith, but maybe it's just the typical stereotypical teacher of, oh, I don't want to change. I've done the same thing for 20 years, but that's at least how it's usually communicated to me. One look at what Paul was doing a few years ago and realizing that, oh my God, this isn't scalable, which you know, I've most recently worked at a pretty big school, whereas if you were working on something that wasn't scalable, then it's almost like people don't see it. You know, they, they may not even criticize it. They just sort of ignore it because it's something outside of their their normal scope of things. And even administration, like they like it, but they're always looking for that scalable thing, especially, I mean, you guys teach high school English. So I think you're given a little more of a niche there of freedom. Uh, whereas if you're in elementary school, you've got six classes per grade level. They want things to be the same in case there's triplets that come through uh, so they're not having like three different education experiences there's a little bit more obsession about this scalability thing I'm curious about this idea of like a performance task so you write that to build international cross-cultural connections and relationships with others so to pose and solve problems collaboratively and strengthen independent thought the game worked even better than I thought in a hot seat method one copy of the game is being played for the whole class it was a student's favorite aspect of play to dissect and discuss the game collaboratively. Check. On mechanisms of ensuring depth of engagement, can you explain a bit about how this hot seat works? And I, th I think I've really failed to mention what the game is actually about so that people kind of have some idea. So how does the hot seat work as opposed to just having the students play individually? Why this idea of the gradual release of doing it as a group before they play individually. And I mean, students have games in their in their schema. How are the objectives in class different from their normal experiences? Sorry, I just threw like five questions at you. Sure. Yeah. So one big aspect um, is logistics. I mean, for um, her story is actually, you know, essentially an interactive movie. So as far as the graphical intensity of the game, you know, almost any device I could run it. And I think it's available on almost every platform that's out there. It is much simpler to plug in one laptop to the projector and project it to the whole class. I found in my own experience that around, you know, 12 to 15 is like a good number of the, the amount of guys who can all kind of be engaged and it to not, you know, kind of be a diffusion of responsibility. So I actually had, I had a bigger class the last time I ran this. So I actually had a volunteer teacher take one of the other sections, had them in two different classrooms so they could do it in a smaller setting as a, oh, without 25 guys all in the same room. Your mileage may vary. So if you, you know, it really depends on the students in the room. You could have 30 students and if they're all really, really engaged, it could be fine. Most of it was that. So there would be one volunteer student. They would go up to the laptop. Her story basically works by Google searching for terms. You're you're essentially searching an archive of scrambled clips that have all been hard-coded by uh, the words spoken by the the interviewee subject. You know, that person is, you know, and, and then when they're up there, they they might put it in, but then as they watch new clips, the other the other guys who are not uh, in the hot seat are throwing ideas out. They're talking to each other. They're cross-referencing notes. They're saying, but what about what you said that, you know, they're comparing theories and dropping theories. So it's just, it's just one of the best organic environments where you can just see the thinking happening, where they're dissecting a text, looking at the meaning of 
multiple meanings of one word that was spoken, you know, the kind of like deep mining of, of meaning that would be familiar, you know, to any, any teacher who, when they, they get that poem that kids are into or, or that, that novel, but I found this activated almost across the board and not with like a, an AP or an honors level class where they're kind of predisposed to that. This was a very wide variety, uh, ability levels and interest levels. I would say almost all of them were completely uh, engaged uh, more than any other unit that I had done with them for sure. I'm sure I missed the question, so feel free to remind no, me. What I was basically trying to get at, I mean, personally, I've, I've borrowed in those kind of scenarios uh, where I have used games in the classroom, that same kind of theater seating where you have uh, narrators behind the game players, maybe even just like broadcasting what's going on in the game or borrowing from Socratic circles. So Socratic circles, you have the inner circle of the active participants, then you have the outer circle of maybe groups that are documenting or interacting and jumping in the circle at different times to make sure that every single student in that environment is, is actively engaged. Yeah, I, I think it does come down to just like, you know, how well you can juggle the, these kind of logistics. And then what is the task that you put upon each person within the class? And then I think also borrowing from uh, participatory theater of theater, you know, Augusto Boal, theater of the oppressed kind of stuff where you can stop action and alternate uh, speakers and things to, to really mix it up. My next question, I guess, tries to bring this a little bit more into our, our current political state here in the States. You write that it takes only a few minutes of browsing the internet to realize the world is full of unreliable narrators. Anything that can help our students build the skepticism and analytical skills to parse truth from fiction, fiction from truth and everything in between, seems essential in the international battleground that has become the 21st century uh, media. We, we don't have to travel very far to find daily tweets about this kind of stuff. What about transference? Is there a performance task with real media, a tweet from a world leader, someone who's been subpoenaed by Congress, for example? Um, how do you tie this into current things going on? I mean, I easily could. Part of the reason that I, I haven't done that explicitly is one, it's kind of outside the scope of the unit. Like I am trying to teach it as like a, like a textual way to understand stories. But in the course of reading the stories, yeah, I, you know, just my natural teaching style encouraged the students always to be reaching from real world examples of where we've, where, where you see people like this, you know, uh, doing tricks. And I do tag a few specific kind of cognitive things that happen during the different short stories, like confirmation bias with, with, with Shirley Jackson. One of the stories we also read is uh, In a Grove, which, you know, the, the movie adaptation is Rashomon, which lended its name to the Rashomon effect, where multiple witnesses can see the same event, but all interpret it differently. Yeah. Could I take a Trump tweet and, and, and ask them to do it? Honestly, I think it would be too easy because it's usually bald-faced lies that have no basis in reality. It would be, one of the, the reasons I stop at that is again the political sensitivities of students way more than when I was in high school are so sharpened that I think when you bring in that kind of white hot radioactive element that's always out there, their thinking gets short circuited. So I almost think it would be kind of counteractive because as soon as, as soon as you put that in, you, you can have students being looking at it through a political filter and then they might push away some of the learning and, and things that they, they got. So I try to keep it in the abstract and I think fiction is a good way to do that. Yeah, it doesn't take a step or two to make the connection. And when the connection is there, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. I, will, I don't think it would be effective to deliver it that directly. I, I get the end goal is that they would tear that apart themselves and delay the emotional mind. But I like how you described it, white, hot, radioactive. Paul, bear with me. Uh, I have a couple more questions for John, which is that I would like to get through uh, 
this series of blog posts that he wrote. For anyone listening, if a lot of this is not clear, please look up the blog post because there are a lot of videos linked in and a lot more descriptions about what kind of uh, gameplay we're talking about here. So you write in a, in a building the unit context and writing, uh, sorry, completely, completely unreliable building the unit is the name of the post, I believe. Say, I have a writing bias. Communication, especially in written form, is as essential as it's ever been, even more so in the internet age. I tell my students all the time, they are almost guaranteed to be making their first impression with someone via their writing, whether it's a social media post, a resume, an email, or published online content. As a result, whenever I build a unit, whether traditional or game-based, the first question I ask myself is, how can I get them to write about this? I had on this podcast, Trevor, um, who also spoke about shole, which is the, the Greek concept of leisure, but it's much more about wonder and explore. How school has derived from this world, from this word is kind of hard to imagine. So two things, games as tools mean that those approaching these tools will have constrictions. Their own experiences, capabilities, beliefs will largely determine their goals. When you mention a writing bias, I think what you're clearing up is gaming mechanics crank up social interaction. They crank up critical thinking. Just about anything we could label 21st century learning. But they are games. People may decode that through their own confirmation bias. How do you talk about this with your students and learning community to get them over this kind of experience, maybe normal experience they have pro or, or against games? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Because of that, I think what one thing I, I, I always do is as I beginning to gear up toward these units that are the game-based learning units is that I never use the word game. I always say, we're going to do an activity. We're going to do a unit. It's going to be an experience. Hold on. I never use the word game because they will instantly, many of them will interpret it as a certain type of experience. Fortnite being the big one, obviously, right now. So I say, we're going to play a game. They instantly think, oh, it's going to be something like Fortnite or something like Call of Duty or something like Madden or 2K that they are intimately familiar with. Sometimes that inversion of the expectation is actually interesting. But for some kids, as they build up an expectation, they get into it, it's almost, it feels like a letdown. So I feel like the word game game is very strongly coded. And so uh, I try to avoid it. So they go into it with a more neutral experience. And then what's great is when, as we're doing it, they start saying like, oh man, this is just like a game. Whereas I'm like, yes, that's the point. <laughs> you know, so uh, you're, you're hooked. So I almost want to try to do it in a way that they they are the one who, who gives it that label and not me. Um, and I feel like that, that allows them to kind of enter it uh, more naturally. So I noticed that you use a strategy that I would normally associate with something called gradual release, that you focus on shorter narratives, which you write, allow me to utilize a key pedagogical method video games have been using for a long time, scaling difficulty. By studying short, uh, multiple shorter narrators, I could introduce my students to gradually more complex narratives and plots. Lowering this threshold of entry, the scaffolding in elementary classrooms, what we call gradual release, moving students through a keystone text, something you do as a whole group, then moving to smaller groups until the ultimate goal of students managing the last part of the project on their own. When I saw your template um, on confirmation bias, this is exactly what I thought as, as I dug up Kahneman's chart for cognitive biases. How do these small moves lead students to the more challenging moves? And do you see them eventually doing much more challenging work and engaging with challenging text from these smaller moves? Yeah, I think one main skill I hope they get out of it is, is to recognize the different motives 
that someone can be unreliable and a big one and it's it's first well it comes up a little bit when we read uh casco Montiato, but it's a bigger one when we read the yellow wallpaper and that's the idea and i think this one's very very relevant in the kind of the social media aspect thinking about you know unreliable narrators out there in the political context and that is when the narrator themselves the person themselves doesn't even know they're being unreliable because i think we all most people have a pretty good bs radar when they think that they're directly being lied to that someone's trying to con them you know out, out of out of money or whatever many people have that skepticism but it's a lot more dangerous when someone is is transmitting something unreliable to you and they believe it and that's what you see you know log on to facebook or twitter and you know it'll take 15 seconds before you find that where someone is passing something on completely unthinkingly and it could be because they believe it it could be because they've been duped it could be because they don't care and they just like that idea and they just want to spread it just to put it out there. So identifying that there are multiple reasons why and that they can be mixed together, someone could be unreliable, that I think is, is a valuable kind of mental framework to be able to carry away that for any dozens of different reasons, you could be being given unreliable information. And it's not just the obvious one of someone trying to sucker you, um, like, like, which is Charles, you know, in the first one. So I noticed a lot of gaming terminology in your post and for non-gamers, that may be a little disorienting. So one was that you talked a lot about like mini bosses, which I thought was mm -hmm. really funny. Uh, you write that now that they had their um, interrogative tools, it was time to work our way up to the final boss. And this is, that yep. again, that, that gradual release idea. Her story is Hannah. But before you can get to the final boss, all gamers know that you have to face a series of increasingly difficult mini-bosses. The mini-boss is a reliable pedagogical trope in video games. They function as skill checks to ensure the player has the requisite abilities to continue into the next phase of the game and even face players, force players to master a specific technique that will be necessary to progress. I definitely sense here some James Paul G reflecting on uh, how well designing video games gradually build up difficulty as the skills broaden and deepen. I also see just great formative assessment. No player could proceed without mastering the skills. Moving in a little closer, how do these formatives work? Um, I kind of asked you this before, but now that we're on this kind of topic of the gradual release, are, are students even conscious of what's going on? Do they move behind this obsessive, is this going to be obsessed attitude that schooling trains? Yeah, by the time you get to high school, most students are pretty, I mean, the first word out of their mouth is, what are we going to be graded on? Or like, you know, once you give an assignment, the first question is, when's it due? I try to do some jujitsu to get away from that. And I focus more on those game terms. So for example, some years when I've done this, just because as I tell students all the time, if I can't mess with students, you know, what was the point of me being a teacher? When we get to the unreliable narrator unit, I'll put her story up on the board and make it seem that like we're going to start this. And then I'll say, no, you guys aren't ready. And I'll pull the plug and I'll say, we got to start, you know, at level one. And then I literally, most years I'll go to the board and I'll write level one, level two, level three, level four, final level. And I'll put Charles under level one and then the rest will be question marks. And then as we go, I will write in like the next stories so to kind of explicitly give that sense of progression. They know that they have to do the uh, annotations as we go. And then once we start her story uh, for real at the end, they, they know that it'll end with a review. Um, 
and there's more of an onboarding aspect of that that comes later. So, yeah, it is it is kind of gradually done uh, almost at every level, but it's explicitly done as a way of increasing in their abilities as opposed to lesson one, lesson two, lesson three. You all have worked on a project together. This deals with like data privacy and creating an alternative reality game that helped kids in real life. And I know you've written a little bit about this. I've, I've found publishings on the KQED uh, website. These are games that you can only play once and then you have to wait until students graduate and move on. And so uh, I think you mentioned that you only play these games every two years because you don't want the students to pass all the information to the, the next class. I find that pretty fascinating. You're talking about a game that can only run so many iterations. You're only going to be able to teach it so many consecutive years. How did you set this game up? <laughs> Paul, you want to take this one? John and I met at a conference in 2013, I think. And we both had an interest in alternate reality games. And we'd each designed our own alternate reality games and started thinking about something we could work on together that would involve both of our schools. We also had a shared interest in privacy and surveillance, and we thought this is something that really is affecting many lives and the lives of our students, but there's not a lot going on pedagogically to really prepare our kids for a world of data mining and surveillance and, and uh, data gathering and the increasing manipulations we're seeing online. So uh, we combined that instructional goal with uh, the, the aim of designing an, an alternate reality game, which we thought would be an ideal way to marry form and content. And we spent the better part of about a year and a half uh, remotely designing it together because John lives in Connecticut and I live in Canada. So through Skype and Google Docs and all kinds of other uh, means, we, we slowly started uh, shaping this game that would uh, take our students independently of each other, but in parallel through uh, a 30-day immersive game that would eventually pit them against each other with the ultimate objective is to uncover the location and identity of their rival school. And the reason we have to stagger it every two years, or we had to stagger it every two years, was because once uh, the identity of the rival schools were uncovered, obviously it's a very quick bit of information that one student could pass on to the other. And from one, you know, from one year to the other, and that would pretty much ruin the whole game. So we had to wait for the institutional memory to die out and for the students to graduate uh, before we could do it again. But now that John's at a new school, or if this were to be done with other teachers, it would be pretty easy to, to run it every year. I have questions. You write that um, education youth about data security, educating youth about data security can fall under the larger umbrella of digital citizenship, such as mm -hmm. social media uses and misuses and learning how not to embarrass or endanger oneself while using the internet, but few resources compared to actually experience a data and privacy be, uh, breach. So uh, you forced this situated aspect of it. Um, I went to Berlin last summer and visited Seabase, uh, which is a hackerspace, and Chaos Computer Club. And I was very impressed how they don't really differentiate between digital and media literacy. I would dare say they just sort of have a holistic view of literacy itself. Mm -hmm. I find our common sense programs much more reactionary than leading with a new media literacy narrative. How does this game make it more constructive as opposed to informing kids what they shouldn't do or shouldn't do with their data and online presence? There's a combination of both because part of the way that you build resources up through the game 
is engaging with some some basic strategies involving a becoming aware where you're vulnerable how to shore up and protect yourself from those vulnerabilities and eventually when it moves into the final phase where the schools are competing against each other usually it's it's a piece of information that's floating uh, around about you on the internet that kind of leads to your team's demise so it's the very real and tangible lesson that uh, you know, your Facebook profile could very easily lead a black hat agent to uncover your location and identity for whatever nefarious reasons or purposes. Yeah. And I think one thing we really strived for that made an alternate reality game a pretty ideal place to do it, as opposed to, I think, your your um, application of the word reactionary to the kind of most traditional digital citizenship pedagogy is, is a good one is, is because we wanted there to be a sense of threat but obviously not a real one and, and done in a way that doesn't actually put anyone in danger um, and put anyone's privacy in danger. So by, by being able to use kind of the, the metaphorical mechanisms of a game, I think we we're able to, to, to give that sense of, uh, of threat, but in a safe environment, which is something that games do very well because just about any soccer game or, or, or football game or lacrosse game, you know, it's a metaphor of battle, but no one's getting killed. What your question leads to is a, is a bigger issue that I think really spans the whole, the, the whole nature of this podcast is that, you know, what John teaches his students with her story is a form of critical thinking that in some ways transcends all literacies. And and when there are questions about, you know, your questions about assessment in the English classroom, I think what has to happen instead of thinking about how do we fit these games and make them relevant to the English classroom is how does the English classroom have to bend and change to make sense to the world that has produced this game? Right. And English, English is a misnomer. I, I, I've said this, that we call it English, but really what we teach, particularly in my province, which, you know, sort of recognizes this is communication. We teach communication, and, and, and in my particular region, uh, that involves reading, writing, listening, speaking, and media studies. Media studies is 25% of what we're supposed to be doing in English, so there's this recognition that is a larger communications ecology. Something like the kind of critical thinking that John teaches transcends all of that. And when you involve a video game in a, in a classroom, in an English classroom, what you're doing is you're acknowledging the ever-changing communications landscape that we're now embedded in. And video games are, you know, one of the communicative means par excellence because they inhere every single type of communication. They use writing, they use audio, they use video, they use motion picture, they use still, they use theatrical and spatial elements. So in some ways, as an artifact, as a learning artifact, there is no better way to, to, to create sort of a, a, a tool or, sorry, an artifact that is worthy or susceptible to analysis. So I think that, that rather than detaining ourselves with some of the more traditional elements of what involves assessing and producing in an English class, I, I, I feel that what's warranted is a reevaluation of what our goals are for what we've traditionally considered to be English class and how we have to adapt those to a very, very different world that contextualizes school. Yeah, Paul, that's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about asking about learning product and assessment, since these are often the criteria that everyone hones in on and kids are really adept at picking this apart of saying like, oh, okay, well, I'm being assessed for this and that's really the only thing that matters. What I feel like you were doing is something um, that we were discussing right before we started the podcast. I was talking about how 
I had been working with some immersions in color uh, using Joseph Albers uh, technique of creating color experiences so that color is this um, psychological thing before it's a scientific thing. And then of the, from those experiences, students developed their own theory from that. So really using this kind of embodied cognition and this situated learning. You all are creating what I believe are experiential learning environments. I mean, this exactly. goes to the pragmatism of Dewey, of knowledge as an action upon your environment. And everything that you build is that to better inform your this mixture of knowledge and intuition. So you write that every decision and click you make is being recorded and scraped by someone who doesn't have your privacy and interest at heart. Fallon says this uh, to his students, think carefully about whether you want your cookie crumbs to be spread. So this very real life context of what kids are living every day with their digital devices and their, and their media presences. I feel like what you all need is not assessments. You need ethnographers to come in your classroom and actually document hmm. some of the stuff that's going on in a more grounded up uh, nature. And that's why I was getting at, so how do students reflect? How do you not just explain to yourselves within the classroom, and but communicate that beyond of what this kind of learning really is? Because I think it does get very distracting once we start talking about your AP requirements and all of your the criteria of what your school is putting upon you or just the system itself. But then what you're creating is something quite different that has a much more multifaceted uh, result. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I think, again, so this is, you know, now you're really cracking open a, a very interesting kind of realm of discussion. And one is that the, you know, what I was alluding to earlier about the content of an English class or what we've traditionally called an English class and how we should reevaluate what that content is with the goals in mind of what English should be doing as a subject, which ultimately teaches communication. But the other side of the coin uh, is the way that learning and teaching is delivered, right? And, and we, we have a system, a very deeply ingrained industrial system of learning that, that perpetuates itself uh, and, and is really fundamentally, it's scripted and mundane. When, when John was, you know, referring to the fact that, you know, the students like when they see a mistake being put on the board is because those are the moments where the very mundane and predictable social script is broken. And, for, and the, the poor zombies that are our students that have been kind of beaten into submission, uh, all of a sudden wake up because something is, is different or something is, is unusual. And that is the core of the engagement of the kinds of games that we design. But also, you know, somebody once said, I, I heard it at a conference. I don't know if it was the individual, Michelle King, who, who came up with this, but she said, I don't teach. I create the conditions in which learning takes place. And I, and I think that that is a beautiful statement. That's where we should aim for. What John and I have, have really aimed to do is to create a learning environment that almost runs by itself. We, we're, we're more designers than we are teachers. We're, we're, we're trying to, to create an, an experience that will draw our students in, that will, that will be dynamic, unpredictable. And to a discussion we were having, maybe I think before we started the podcast, ultimately not necessarily scalable or scalable in the traditional sense, because scale has some kind of not just industrial underpinnings, but some sort of capitalist motives as well on, on some level, right? And, oh, and, what it, and, and what that is, is you're, you come up with an idea, right? As a teacher, let's say I come up with a really good idea and, you know, I, I, this is going to get me out of the classroom, right? And we should really wonder why teachers are so 
so uh, in such a rush to get out of the classroom. And then I'm going to commercialize this idea and mass produce it. And every teacher across North America is going to be doing a version of this or actually exactly this. And, and, I, and I find that a bit, you know, problematic in the sense that every single school is a different culture. Every single community is a different culture. And therefore, learning and teaching should be adapted to that particular culture. And, and that I think that, that, that I would like to see a diversification of teaching and learning styles. So, for example, and this goes to your point about ethnography, I think the most valuable thing for some of the projects that John and I do are not here is the paint by number recipe for you to do this exact thing in your classroom. It's really documenting the experiences to the best of our ability, sharing those documented experiences to inspire other educators to put on their design hats and use some of these elements and reconfigure them in a way that makes sense to them personally within their kind of limitations and affordances as human beings, but also to adapt to the unique culture of their particular schools. I mean, John and I teach all boys, that has a certain cultural ramification. We teach in independent schools, that has another cultural ramification. So the things that we do in our environments are not necessarily useful, possible, or of interest to somebody who teaches in a drastically different environment. Yeah, well, a few things that I wanted to jump off from that is, one is, is, is Paul mentioned surprise, and like that is such a big thing, because I think, it, it could be the biggest blind spot that teachers have is that we live in chaos. From the moment we walk into our classroom, even maybe before we get in our classroom, we are being inundated with the chaos of teaching young, young minds. You know, kids are crazy and it is the best thing about teaching and, and sometimes the worst thing. But if you ask any teacher, the one thing that they can tell you is that it's never boring. That's for sure. Maybe not for good reasons, but it's never boring. The same is not true for students. We have industrialized and commodified, just absolutely railroaded their entire educational experience. Starting in kindergarten, starting before kindergarten, their day is not that much different than any other day. And, and we forget how mind-numbing that can be, you know, and as, as, as we depart from being a student and then faced with the chaos on our end, I think we completely forget that. Doing things differently that truly and genuinely surprise them, I think pays amazing dividends. And I think it, 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 it's, it's not a surprise that Paul and I, we designed Blind Protocol that the, the first day, the, the rabbit hole of the game, we do the most surprising thing possible where we engineer this kind of pseudo sci-fi moment where it looks like the classroom has been hacked and hmm. Paul and I leave. We leave the classroom and we don't come back. There's nothing more shocking, more disruptive to the traditional learning environment than the teacher not being there at all. I think that very much like pointed to one of the things that we, you know, and I think we backed into that. That I don't think that that was not an explicit pedagogical role. That was just theatrics, but I think it's a good metaphor for what all teachers and all different experiences, what you should strive to do is like, how can I make this experience less predictable? Um, and, I, and I think, and it was ironic is I think teachers are being trained to do the opposite, to make it predictable as possible, which I think is so crazy. I, I, I just have to say something in addition to what John said very quickly. It's so funny because the last time we played on that first class, where obviously the students have no idea what's about to happen, I walked in and had about a five-minute discussion with one of my all-time kind of top students, really creative, really awesome kid. And we were oh, yeah. talking about like Black... Cool. 
we're talking about Black Mirror, the show Black Mirror. And and he says to me, he goes, can we just kind of do a show of Black Mirror? And honest to God, he could not have picked a better thing to say because we delivered a 30-day episode of Black Mirror after that. He couldn't believe it. And the other thing, too, I never thought about this, you know, hearing John talk, but the, the fact that we start the first day of the game with the teacher walking out of the classroom, you know, 15 minutes into class, and then the game takes over, I think is a wonderful metaphor where we should be going with all of this, right? Like we weren't necessary for this. This ran itself, that we worked very hard to put all the mechanisms in place that this thing was running on its own. And, and we didn't have to, because once it kicked in, it was so engaging and the students were so compelled by what was going on that in, in you know, and of all the years that we've run it, we've never had a problem with walking out of the class and letting the class take over and the mechanisms of the game take over to run the rest of the class. I mean, the kids were absolutely immersed in what was happening, absolutely engaged. In those mechanics, uh, just so we go a little further into how the game is run, I understand like you start and it's unexpected thing. Something that really surprised me is you wrote that the two classes are experiencing the ARG, the augmented reality game separately, and the students are unaware of each other's existence until they eventually interact halfway through the four-week unit, which means they've been in that game already for two weeks before they realize they're not alone in the game. Right. Keep the oh. secret. Uh, you mentioned that you stagger the game. You know, every couple of years you run the game. And then what are students' reaction and surprise when they realize that, oh, my God, we're not the only students playing this game? I think they're mostly just surprised. And then, you know, at that point, it, it becomes like a direct competition. So I feel like it's just been it's cranked up a little bit. Like they feel like they're under the gun. And we through different times, the two different times we did it, we found different ways of trying to make them feel that pressure. That was just one where it became now like this hunt of where once they realize they're not alone, that's immediately followed by this group is looking for you right this second. Get to it. And the other thing too is that they don't really suspect the scope of what's happened. I mean, in my case, many of them suspected it was another class in the same school. Uh, mm -hmm. Initially, they can't fathom that it's a class in a completely different country that they're competing with. So it, it takes them a while. And in, in fact, many of the moves that they make to try to uncover their opponents early on are based on that assumption that they're much more local than what ultimately ends up being the case. Yeah, it's definitely, I think that's, a, and that's a, a good thing to tie to the themes of the game is that, you know, the threats and the scope of the data that you interact with on the internet is global. It is a complete global experience. When it comes to cybersecurity and privacy, your, your geographic borders, you know, are, are mostly meaningless. So, so that, that's often a good thing to reinforce. You're right. All of a sudden I get a phone call, Darvis, Fossey says, oh, sorry, someone's writing about this. And Fallon gets the same fake phone call, too, as each follows the same setup. Each teacher then steps outside the classroom, leaving the students alone, as you mentioned already. Then the video restarts, seemingly gets hacked, and a voice urges students to check their email. Students then find an email from a mysterious entity named Horace and an email with the school domain address. The message from Horace contains a video message with instructions for the ARG. So this is the onboarding, launching of the game, I'm assuming. Yep. Does this bring into contact what you were just talking about, all of the black hat hacking that's been going on, shadow brokers, for example, paralyzing Philadelphia Public Health Services, all the identity theft going on, and the fact that no one sees any end to this, even you know the experts meet at global conferences and say, we don't know how to stop it, and even while we've been talking, it's probably happened again. Yeah, well, one thing is, is 
And I know this just from my own research and reading, but also I have many friends and even family who work in the cybersecurity sectors, both public and private. And one of the things I'm always shocked by is is just the complete ignorance and ineptitude uh, of it. And you can just see that both the people and the technological system were just not set up to deal with this. Part of the reason why I'm so passionate about teaching this when they're this age and you know in high school is they're they're developing the habits and the mindsets that will carry on for the rest of their lives. And if they learn to realize that technology is this constantly growing and evolving thing, and you always have to be updating both literally and metaphorically your defenses and thinking several steps ahead, if they take that into the future, hopefully we will, you know, have future generations that are, are not going to be lackadaisical about cybersecurity and, and, and making sure that they understand how these systems work, as opposed to how do I turn on and how do I send the file that I need, which seems to be all that so many of these systems you know, are, are built on. So in, going further into the mechanics of the game itself, they write, um, Darvashi students in Toronto can pull together 55 faux Bitcoins to purchase and launch the botting protocol against an opponent. The student targeted Fallon School in Connecticut would then have 48 hours to record audio of 10 words of Darvasi students choosing and send it back to them through an intermediary, Darvasi or Fallon. For a higher price of 65 faux Bitcoin, students can launch Morphling, which would give the opponent 48 hours to record a one minute video explaining three ways to stay safe while using Facebook, while making their school mascot or a close approximation of appear in the video in some way during the entire minute. So explaining to a peer is one thing, and this is a very powerful pedagogical tool, but explaining to a competing team in another school by having to construct an informative video is another. The school mascot is particularly clever. Did you all make this up? Like, where are you getting all these ideas? Mm -hmm. Just a little back, what we did is that to buy Bitcoins, to earn Bitcoins, you produce artifacts and the artifacts you produce all relate to privacy data surveillance. So for, and, and you mix and match. So for example, you can create a brochure about passwords and there's a whole roster of topics and production artifacts that you can combine in any way that you want with Bitcoins that are attached to each one. And then what that happens is in, in the, the final phase of the game, it's revealed a catalog is unlocked, which is, you know, previously kind of not available to the students. And the catalog has a whole series of what we call protocols. Uh, you just described a few of them and that have different prices attached to them. And John and I found this, uh, the model for this as part of the Snowden leak from the NSA. And there's, there's an NSA catalog that has all these toys that the NSA can purchase internally for them to, to conduct surveillance at various levels. So John and I used this model for, for creating the catalog that then we issued to the students. And then that's the final phase of the game is that they launch these protocols, spending the Bitcoins that they earn while producing artifacts that inform them on the various, you know, sort of privacy themes. And the, the combination of these protocols that we designed to open very small windows into the reality of the opponent, not large enough that it would be an obvious giveaway, but as John has said, little breadcrumbs that could lead them to their opponent. And eventually the team that puts these all together first and, and, and kind of triangulates the information that they've, that they've mined declares what they think the school is or the identity of their opponents. And, and they're the winners, the first one to declare. Yeah. And cool. one thing I think that is really important to note is that in the feedback from the students, one of the things they liked the most about this experience 
was the fact that the, the artifact production where they were choosing to research and do all these different mini pro uh, projects is that they had a, a list of like 25 to 30 different types they could do. And as long as the topic was within the relatively large umbrella of, you know, cybersecurity, you know, privacy and surveillance, they could do it on whatever they wanted. And they really liked that freedom and that agency. And that's something that I've then tried to transfer into other units that I do. And I think it's another mistake that we teachers make is that we do not open up the students to, to, to follow their own curiosities anywhere near enough. And I, and I think, you know, we could have probably done many different topics. Like if you gave them that uh, sense of freedom, I think you would, you would find similar levels of engagement uh, with students. And, and one example, it's a, it's a funny anecdote from this is a group of students were, were working on their, their artifacts. And this one boy was, he had decided that he was gonna do, I can't remember what it was, I think it was drones. I kept looking over at him and, and I kept seeing him doing something other than, than researching drones. And then I went over to him and I was, you know, Josh, like, you know, you gotta watch the clock. You're only gonna have so much time before you're gonna have to be able to accumulate all these. And he goes, I know, but I just can't, I just can't stop reading and watching all these videos about Bitcoin. Like, it's so fascinating. And I was like, Josh, why don't you just do it on Bitcoin? Oh, I, I can do that? I'm like, yes, you can do any topic you want. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do that instead. And then he went and just immediately did a, a great video about Bitcoins, um, explaining what they were. But, you know, it, it it's kind of, it's funny, but it's also kind of sad that they're just not used to being, they assume that if they're curious about it and it came organically, that they're almost not supposed to be pursuing it, which is, is kind of a sad indictment of the learning that usually goes on in the classroom. You know, the mechanics that you're describing, I've often seen, or you all describe and others as well, is this idea of questing, where teachers can give quests or challenges. Students can also make up their own quests, you know, creating this entire inquiry-based structure where they can push it wherever they want. Um, I also love this mechanic of where the kids have to take screenshots of their computer. And that's a real, you know, malware. <laughs> practice of things capturing your keystrokes and things capturing periodic screenshots of your computer and sending them God knows where. I'm also thinking just there's endless possibilities of what you could have kids have to grapple with within this environment. Crypto parties were a big thing in Berlin where you show up with your devices and you meet with professionals and they just tell you how to lock everything down. Like how do you keep everything encrypted? How do you keep all your blocks? Which social medias did you you know, be more wary of, or do you need to download Signal or use a Tor browser? You know, there's all these different ways to get around uh, different ways of, of being monitored. I don't know if you need your kids to go that deep into it, but these are like real life ways that malware attacks us. And there are, in response to that, real ways that the kids could learn, like the most professional ways to go about protecting themselves. Um, well, yeah, that was explicitly the subject of many of the artifacts they could do. Like there were they did videos about, you know, the privacy settings on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, how to turn off like the geotagging on your phone when you take a picture. So if you spread a picture, it doesn't tell you exactly where you are. So that, and that was something we really tried to do as well, is we wanted them to be creating artifacts that had a hundred percent real world value. <clears throat> Things that could be posted around the school, like PSAs, how-to videos. Like we wanted it to be 100% real world context. You know, if it's only valuable within the classroom, it's useless. And that's what that's what most work is. So that real world application definitely was one of the explicit things that we had in mind. No, I'm just thinking like in the next iteration of the game, how many things that have come up really like in the last six months to a year from 
facial recognition being legalized in Boston and San Francisco to the DNA testing and triangulation of identity, whether you've ever been tested. If anyone within a proximity in your genetic pool oh, yeah. has been tested, then you know, you, you're in that system as well. To China and the, I'm going to mispronounce it, but the Uyghur region where- Uyghur, yeah where they have to install uh, surveillance software on their phone, you know, it's mandatory or the re-education camps. I mean, all of the dystopic black mirror like things that are really like maybe were speculative, but now they're right in front of our faces. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Science fiction has become reality and very, um, very quickly. This next one has to do with an article, the first door, gender authority and choice in the Stanley parable. And I love that the things you guys are talking about have like, you know, releases in 2014, but they're also all having new iterations. I mean, this particular game is gonna have a new version uh, coming out this year. I forget the makers of the game that you're talking about, this interactive video with all the little narratives. Um, First story. Yeah, so th there's like a, a new um, narrative coming out in that same format as well. Um, so there's yeah, any, uh, any day now. I feel like you, you started things, you know, five, six years ago, but they have very like, they're very poignant in this moment right now as well. So let's talk a little bit about this um, Gamergate and, and gender in gaming. I know you teach at all boys schools. And I know you're both, uh, John, I believe you are also a gamer of sorts in some ways. So uh, you know that it's like Gamergate thing that happened five years ago blew everybody out of the water. Paul, I just read your um, research on gender narrative and authority, and I, I see that there's a new edition of the game, which I just mentioned. And I also read this description of the early 20th century British board game called The Suffragettes, in which women battle the police and try to disable them with jujitsu, uh, or they end up in jail. Parlor games were once part of how women asserted themselves in a man's world. But given Gamergate sensitivities over the last four years, I wonder about games and gender in the classroom. Do you have any backlash from uh, men who enlist engagement in serious games? Uh, this is not the games that they're normally used to. Um, and do you notice gender challenges and engagement between different types types of games? You know, participatory pervasive games are, involve a lot of improv theater techniques, for example, versus the digital one-man shooter games that they're used to. I teach gender to the grade 11s and grade 12s to all boys. I frequently bring up the F word in class. And it's I'll tell you, it's a bit of an uphill battle sometimes, right? Because there's a lot of what's happened, what I've realized, what I've untangled from doing it for, for many years now, is that notions of feminism that are held widely by many of the boys that I teach are really based on the circulation of YouTube videos where you have an angry woman railing or, or going over the top about something and that becomes to them the face of feminism. I mean, there's no reading involved. There's no deeper understanding of gender issues. There's no exploration at any scholarly level. It just becomes sort of the, the circulation of videos and memes and, 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 you know, some heated arguments they may have with their sisters at the dinner table. So I, I actually use games uh, like uh, there's a beautiful game called The Path. I, I do a whole unit around using Little Red Riding Hood and the motif of, of Little Red Riding Hood from its early oral origins and how the story has been used and progresses, you know, through the last two or three hundred years and how each of its manifestations in some way speaks to its cultural context and how, you know, the, the issues of representation within its very basic fairy tale form all the way through to its manifestation in a game called The Path, uh, which, which looks at all these different young women's experiences, very difficult experiences, through a very poetic lens. And, and what I find is we start looking at it from different angles. There's definitely a softening of the views from the perspective of, uh, of the boys that I teach. And my, my research, my doctoral research using Grand Theft Auto V, 
the initial exploratory stuff was based around looking for gender, race, political ideology and violence within the game and opening up discussions and readings on all of those topics uh, and using the game as a site where they could discuss their experiences through those lenses. Eventually, I landed on race as, as the most interesting based on the type of data that I was crunching. But there was a, there was a real awakening, not just in terms of, of how women are represented in Grand Theft Auto V, but also how men are represented and, and notions of masculinity and hegemonic masculinity and very narrow representations of masculinity and how that that kind of you know inculcates a certain way of being with boys that may ha- <laughs> that may have very different senses of masculinity that are natural to them but don't really have a script to follow in that respect so i think that games games can definitely you know they are gendered and there's been a lot particularly the industry is quite toxic or has been quite toxic towards women the mainstream kind of AAA studios, but it's also a site of subversion. Uh, there's a lot of small independent games and small independent female artists that are using the medium and LGBTQ to articulate their their circumstances to and, and as a form of activism. Uh, you know, Zoe Quinn's Depression Quest is a great example of that. And she's definitely, you know, the person that, that started the whole uh, Gamergate atrocity. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've seen a very similar thing that Paul has seen where, yeah, I, I would say that the, the, the most heated political kind of knee-jerk reactions I've seen has been to quote-unquote feminazis um and it is usually you know in a completely ignorant context and and actually reminds me of an interview that, that I'll, I'll send you guys because i think it's it's a pretty much irrelevant where yeah on, on youtube which many media scholars are saying is kind of five ten years ahead of the curve of where mainstream political fights are and if you go on youtube it, it is all about gender you know it is it is not about healthcare. it is not about you know race so much but so like gender is this next battleground field yeah i think i think games can be great because uh in many cases they require you to to, you you have to use empathy to play a game that has a narrative i think that's one of the things that's great about games is that it can be i think a a more seamless way to experience a a different um, identity that uh that they're already kind of primed for so that is one area that I am optimistic in. Yeah, I see this neat parallel that both of you all are working on, and I see the same thing with our interactive technologies in that we very much leave this mostly up to just the market. You know, it's kind of like this kinder culture where we leave kids as kind of victims to however the market wants to treat them and market to them. And in the gaming world, I see the same thing. Like if you go on to Twitch, you know, kind of surf through different gaming channels and listen to how these young boys or men, whatever they want to identify them as, how they this bro talk that they communicate in, it's downright scary. And I know there's beautiful things happening on Twitch as well. There's live painting, there's all this amazing stuff, but the majority of it is, is, is this bro culture of gaming. And so that to me was sort of, you know, we want to teach the intelligent uses of our interactive technologies. And we also want to teach the intelligent uses of gaming because I believe it is incredibly powerful. But if you look at sort of the back channels of 4chan, 8chan, and what's fomenting and being produced there, it, it's pretty disgusting at the same time. And it's all doing through this lens of, fa- of fantasy gaming. Yeah, I think I think there's a, there's a, that's definitely the next hill to climb because, you know, growing up, you know, I'm 33. So growing up in school, like even in a very isolated, you know, bubble of a suburb, like race was a concept that you were forced to grapple with, you know, at least in the abstract. But gender was not. Like it was, it, there was no discussions of, of gender or mass 
masculinity or anything like that. And I think we're beginning to see the whole that that kind of left. I think kids are, are much more racially conscious. I mean, they're, they're still it's still a thorny concept that, you know, befuddles everybody. But compared to gender, I think we're, we're we, we've moved the ball farther. And I, I think, yeah, there is, yeah, there's definitely more to come when it comes with that. And I think teachers will have their hand, hands full. And I, and I, I would advise every teacher to figure out how they're going to begin to have those conversations. So I want to close with this idea of, of multimodality and transmedia literacy, it's big words, but they're We'll bring him into like a, a more context that we can we can grapple with. In the article on reading and digital media, rejoiner to digital technology and student cognitive development, the neuroscience of the university classroom. That's quite a mouthful. Uh, similar to John's use of Shirley Jackson, Paul, you've adapted Gone Home to approach reading analysis. In the Journal of Management of Education, you were quoted, English class can become a sort of theater where everyone pretends the texts are being read. Our duty as educators is to design our courses to prepare students to think critically and succeed in their current communication context, as that is the environment where they must survive and, and hopefully prosper. I wonder if you might comment on a more holistic approach to literacy. While we train students to decode and produce text, the reality is students spend a much greater amount of time decoding across multiple mediums, the rapid rise in games, uh, social media, political and advertising transmedia blitz, that to train students to function in a democracy, uh, these may be the decoding production skills that are needed. W what are your thoughts on that? I'm a big fan of the written word. I, I, I read every day. I, 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 the best things that have happened in my life are as a result of literature. I would like nothing more than to share the passion I have for literature with my students. But I, I also have to take into consideration the reality that I'm living in. And unfortunately, many teachers, many English teachers, are looking back at their kind of magical high school experiences where even when I was in high school, a lot of the kids weren't reading the books right so and and that was with far less uh you know distracting them from that reading and now i i i see that with all the resources available online with uh, their, the ability for them to create internal communication networks and 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 share information that they don't really have to do nor do they often want to do the reading so we could either continue with what i call theater of english where we all pretend that reading is being done and we pretend that things are going on, you know, as normal or we start making adjustments to take that reality into consideration. Right. And, and that doesn't mean eliminating books from the curriculum, but it does require some, what I think are going to be some dramatic adjustments. And, and one of them, what I'm convinced of is that we are returning to a court, a culture of orality. Right. That that increasingly, you know, there was a great piece that was written in The New York Times about one of their writers who now wanders around Silicon Valley and dictates his columns uh, in through his, uh, his, his iPad or his, his headphones. And then he uses a voice to text transfer system and then just edits his work. And he says that his writing is now better because it's more conversational, which is what, you know, writing should ideally aim for. And, uh, and, and I saw that as, as, as a very big first step towards this culture of morality. Here we are creating a podcast. Podcasts are very popular. We're increasingly having these kind of devices in our in our homes where we can orally dictate commands like turn off the lights or tell me when Mount Marilyn Monroe's birthday is. And and we can now dictate text. We have Siri to give us all the information that we need. And and all of this is, you know, this was predicted by Marshall McLuhan a very long time ago. What he saw as the end game of what he called electronic media, but what he was really talking about was digital media, was a return to, to orality. And, and what's fascinating about this, wrapping the whole thing around in terms of this culture of post 
post-truth culture is what the internet has done when we codified texts in, in you know with the printing press in a written paper form we we consolidated ideas in a way that were not mutable because oral cultures are mutable what a person says changes from one day to the next our imperfect memories kind of create this game of broken telephone where stories always changing and mutating and creates you know kind of this mythological mindset right and and uh, what the internet did is we thought, wow, we're going to have the biggest library known to humanity and we're going to take all of these texts and put them in digital form. But what we lost sight of, uh, and we, I think, continue to lose sight of, is the fact that the same mutability that characterized oral culture is now being applied to those texts that were once quotified on paper, but it now are mutable in the digital sphere, right? Uh, a Wikipedia pages are constantly changing. A page that you look at one day may be different the day after, and you can't with imperceptible differences. And it's exactly that culture, that, that, that kind of orality that's, or, or that oral mode that is actually at the heart of the internet, even though it's not explicitly oral, is that what's, what's creating this kind of crisis of truth. But, but the other thing we have to remember is that even when we were codifying this stuff on paper, I don't think we were too much closer to the truth than we are now. <laughs> I think it's always been versions and perspectives. And, and, and the only truth that really exists is the moment in and of itself. And everything else is a representation of. Uh, and, and, and I feel that, that we're, we're going to return to that mythological mindset that characterized our, our earlier oral mode. Uh, and that we as educators, um, as forward thinking educators, have to really start thinking about that as being the emergent reality, although I have very little hope that that's going to be the case. And I feel that rather the, the, the momentum of, of social necessity is going to force changes on people rather than anybody kind of coming up or, or foreseeing the, the changes that have to be made. I want to congratulate you on your most recent tirade especially that you didn't use one bad word throughout the whole thing. That, that oh, was... there, there are lots of agreements. <laughs> <laughs> this is one fascinating and endless topic. Thank you guys for taking the time to explain it. John, uh, it's very nice to meet you in, in live form. And yeah, uh, I look forward to hearing about future iterations and whatever games you all are developing in the classroom in the future. I hope you will keep it, uh, at least publish it or keep it open source or however you get it out there. Uh, I think it's extremely valuable. No, I'll be doing um, at least one or two uh, games as text units that are new for this year. So I'll be sure to update my blog once I kind of get those rolling and I've uh, rolled them out. Great. So where do people find, um, how do they follow you? Um, and then maybe you want to like point them somewhere else to a cool conference or what you're reading or endorse uh, something in addition to your own work. But how do people reach out to you and find your work? Uh, and then where would you point them? Sure. All right. The easiest way to get uh, get in touch with me or follow my work would be uh, first on my blog, uh, which is at thealternateclassroom.org. You can also find me on Twitter, Twitter at John, J-O-H-N, C as in Christopher Fallon. And, and uh, th those are regularly checked. And um, you can find my email through, through there as well. First source I would say to check out is if you're in the Northeast to, uh, at the end, toward the end of August, I think August 19th and 20th, there's the Games and Education Symposium, which is where Paul and I met and where I met many of the other kind of uh, tribe members, as we like to call ourselves, of the game-based learning world. So if you can make it to the Albany, uh, New York area around that time, I, 
I would strongly recommend you go and you can um, definitely walk away with uh, more than a few uh, great ideas. Uh, my work's really distributed. I, I, I was I was keeping a blog, which I hope to return to once my doctoral work is over, but I haven't really added anything since 2016, although there's lots of valuable material there. It's at ludiclearning.org, ludic, L-U-D-I-C, learning. Dot org. Uh, but if you Google my name, uh, Paul Darvazi, D-A-R-V-A-S-I, you'll find lots of stuff that I write, lots of stuff that's been written about my work, my Twitter account, uh, my Gmail address, if you want to write me, is pauldarvazi at gmail.com. Uh, and, and like John, I highly endorse the Games and Education Symposium in Upstate New York. It's where we all met. It's where teachers present to teachers. They're all very practical examples of the and stuff, not just in games. But, but some really cool digital stuff, and, and it's, a, it's a very special conference that we all really value. Cool. No, I feel like what you guys need is, is some some form of microblogging, you know, just like an image with a couple of sentences to kind of uh, keep up. I, I think the games education movement, if you want to call it that, is an exciting thing, but you have to really stay on it and track after it. It's also very, you all, all seem to know each other from the right conferences and stuff, which is pretty amazing. Like, the network is really strong. Um, thank you guys. If you want to stick around just for a second, I'm going to disconnect here um, and say our goodbyes. Thanks very much, Chris. That was a lot of fun. Thank you.